the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Matthew. Pharisees, no doubt, they're in the crowd too. And Jesus says, all right, you've heard the commandment, you shall not murder. Yep, we've got that one down, Jesus. Okay, but I say to you, if you've been angry with your brother, if you called him a fool, you're in danger of going straight to hell. <laughs> because what has he done now? He's peeled back the heart. He's saying, all right, now look, let's just not talk about behavior. It's one thing to say that you haven't killed somebody, and that's wonderful. That's a good thing. Don't go kill anybody. But have you been angry with somebody to the point you wish they were dead? Because if you have, you're just as guilty. Jesus sets a high bar for righteousness in today's message. It seems impossible to attain. Who can claim that they've never had an evil thought in any form? As Pastor Gary will explain in today's message, that's the point Jesus is making. It is impossible for us to truly be righteous. So before you start aiming judgment at others, examine your own heart and consider the grace that God extends to you on a daily basis. We can be righteous, but not by our own might, only through Christ. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. There is this aspect of persecution that is a bit foreign to us because we live in relative comfort here in America. We don't really experience the kind of persecution that that Jesus' followers in the first century would have certainly been exposed to. But he says that if you are persecuted, you'll be blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then there's this amplification of this beatitude in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, again, persecution is a bit foreign to us because of our comfort here in America, but uh, statistically, more Christians have been persecuted, have been martyred for their faith in the last century than in the previous 19 combined. It's just that we don't see it. But all around the world, Christians are dying for their faith today. They're being persecuted in places around the world where Christianity is outlawed, illegal, and Christians are dying for their faith today. More in the last century than the previous 19 centuries have died for their faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, persecution is a reality in the world, just not something that we're often uh, exposed to. In uh, Acts chapter 5, there's this great verse that has to do with Peter and John when they're brought before the Sanhedrin and they're commanded not to preach the gospel anymore. And they went ahead and preached anyway, and then they were whipped for it. 
And in Acts 5.41, it says that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, for the name of Jesus. So I don't know where you might run into a little persecution, small p, around the office, around the neighborhood, with your family. Look, don't shy back from declaring who Jesus is in your life. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed to let people know that Jesus is your Lord. He's your Savior. And look for opportunities when God might open up a door for you to actually share your testimony, share your faith. Because it's in those moments when people will hear the good news through your life story. And if you're persecuted for it, if people shun you, if they mock you, big deal compared to the kind of persecution people are experiencing around the world. And Jesus says you'll be blessed for it anyways. Well, verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And then he adds, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And so Jesus says, not you're becoming, not you will be, but you are. You are salt, and you are light. You are salt, and you are light. Now, as he speaks in these terms, what is understood here is that the world is dark and decaying. That's why he's saying, you're light because the world is dark. You are salt because the world is decaying. Uh, In John's Gospel, chapter 3, Jesus talked about this in verse 19 when Jesus said, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world. He's talking about himself. It's capital L in the text. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. There's all this reference in the Bible about being light in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. It says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And there are many times in the Bible where there's this parallel drawn between living the Christian life in a world of sin is likened unto shining a light into the darkness. And Jesus says, you are to be salt and you are to be light. There's to be a penetrating, purifying, preserving aspect of your life in this world amongst the people that you live. Now, the idea of salt, let's start with that one first, because the idea of salt has some real benefits, and we understand in many ways how salt is a beneficial product. In fact, uh, the ancient Romans, the soldiers used to be paid by two things. The plunder, whenever they would take a town or take a city, the Roman soldiers would help themselves to the plunder, and they would also be paid by salt. Salt was a precious commodity in the day, and the Latin word for salt is salarium, meaning of salt, anything being of salt, salarium, and it is where we get our English word salary. Your salary, if you're worth your salt, that's the expression, it means you've earned your wages, you've earned your salt, and it's a precious commodity. And we know from, you know, just the history of salt, the tremendous preserving aspect of salt, it used to be the only means by which you could preserve meat. In the days before refrigeration, everything was saturated in salt or rubbed down uh, with salt, 
and uh, it would help to preserve the meat and kill the bacteria. It's also like an antiseptic. Uh, it's a good home remedy. Gargle with salt water when you have a sore throat. Uh, salt is a medicinal product. It's an antiseptic. And it also has a flavoring aspect, of course, to it. That it, that it is uh, not only preserving, like for meat, but it's penetrating and, as in flavor. And it's purifying as like an antiseptic. Now, kind of take all of this imagery and consider your life. Because where you live and where you work, you're to have a penetrating effect. You should be flavoring your, your place of work. And it's flavoring with that, the flavor of Jesus where you go. There should be this preserving aspect of your life in a corrupt world. There should be kind of an antiseptic. There should be a remedy. People should understand that the remedy for their sinful lives is Jesus. And Jesus says to us that you were to be that representation. You were to be like salt in this world. I came across this quote from John Stott, who uh, died um, a couple of years ago, but he was a great uh, English theologian, and he said this. He said, if the house is dark at night, there is no sense in blaming the house. That's what happens when the sun goes down. The question to ask is, where is the light? If meat goes bad, there is no sense in blaming the meat. That is what happens when the bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the salt? If society becomes corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, where is the church? Where is the church? We are to be the salt and light in this world. Our godly influence should have a preserving effect in a spoiled world. We're to have a penetrating influence to spread the flavor of Christ wherever we go. And we are to offer a healing remedy like an antiseptic for people's souls. And when people are around you, because of that nature of salt, they should be thirsty. They should get thirsty for what you have if you are demonstrating who Jesus really is in your life. He says, you are the salt of the earth. He says, you are the light of the world. city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, don't light your lamp and put it under a bowl, but you're to let your light shine before men that they might see your good deeds and glorify. Notice what he says that, and glorify or praise your Father in heaven. That's the end of verse 16. So there should be things about our lives that people see Jesus in us and it causes them to look heavenward and it moves them in direction of God because of our life's influence among others. That's the challenge here. That's what he's calling us to be about. And by the way, salt works secretly from within, but light works openly from without. In verse 17, Jesus says, "...who do not think..." that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to disregard the law, but I want to expand your understanding that it's not just about obeying the letter of the law, it's about heart issues. He says in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter... Not the least stroke of a pen will by, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, when he speaks here about the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is called yod. In the Greek alphabet, it's called uh, iota. 
the smallest letter. And Jesus says, now, not the smallest letter. In the Hebrew language, there were different punctuation marks, different like accent marks, which would completely change the meaning of a word. And Jesus says, not the least stroke of a pen, not the least, if you have a King James Bible, it says jot or tittle, but it talks about the punctuation marks in the Hebrew language. He says, not the least little stroke of a pen is going to change because the word of God is consistent. It is timeless truth and uh, heaven and earth will disappear. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but this word will never pass away. He says in verse 19, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you need to put some Jewish ears on for this one, because Jesus says here, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to make it to heaven. And the people of Jesus' day would have been startled by that comment, because everybody looked at Pharisees and the teachers of the law as being exemplary in their behavior of obeying the commandments. And yet Jesus says, your righteousness better surpass theirs, or you're not getting to heaven. And they would have been probably befuddled by this, thinking, how can we be more righteous than these people, the Pharisees and teachers of the law? Man, they are the examples of righteousness. Now, here's what we need to understand. It goes back to this heart issue. Paul would write in Galatians 3.24, Galatians 3.24, he says, the law was put into effect to lead us to Christ. The law was put into effect to lead us to Christ. Here's what should happen when you read the commandments. When you read the commandments of God, you should realize, man, I don't measure up. That's what's supposed to happen. When the, when the Jews would enumerate all the laws of the Old Testament, there were 613 mitzvahs, 613 laws. 365 were negative laws. You shall not do something. That's one do not do rule for every day of every year. 365, and the rest were positive. 613 laws total. Now, if you try to live up to those, you're going to realize how you fall short. And the law was put in place, Paul says, to lead us to Christ, because when you begin to realize, man, I, you know, I broke six commandments just driving to church tonight, right? What's that supposed to do? It's supposed to move you towards Christ, because then you begin to realize, I need grace, I need mercy, I need forgiveness. And, and how's that going to come? Not by the law, but by Christ, by grace. So when Jesus here says, now your righteousness better surpass the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're, they're internally going to go, how can we do that? And then he's going to deal with the heart issues. What he's going to end up doing is pointing them to himself. He's going to be like, yeah, you can't, you can't surpass their righteousness because they're hypocrites themselves, what you all need is a dose of grace, and that's going to come through Jesus. So he's going to expose heart issues here as he goes on. And he's going to start here in verse 21. Some of your Bibles will be subtitled murder. Now, you'll notice here in verse 21, he starts out by saying, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. And there are six times in Matthew chapter 5, and this is going to be the first one, there are six times when Jesus uses this phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. So he's going to lift up the law and he's going to say, but now I'm going to raise the bar here and I'm going to expose the heart issue. And here's the first one as it relates to murder. He says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. That's commandment number six. 
of the Ten Commandments, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Okay, now that's the law. Now here's, again, here's what Pharisees will start to think to themselves. I haven't killed anybody. I'm doing good. I haven't killed anybody today. I'm doing good. And Jesus says, well, let me just tell you something. I tell you, verse 22, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. How are you feeling now? <laughs> you know, so here are these people, they're listening to it, and the Pharisees, no doubt, they're in the crowd too, and Jesus says, all right, you've heard the commandment, you shall not murder. Yep, we've got that one down, Jesus. Okay, but I say to you, if you've been angry with your brother, if you called him a fool, you're in danger of going straight to hell. <sighs> because what has he done now? He's peeled back the heart. He's saying, all right, now look, let's just not talk about behavior. It's one thing to say that you haven't killed somebody, and that's wonderful. That's a good thing. Don't go kill anybody. But have you been angry with somebody to the point you wish they were dead? Because if you have, you're just as guilty. Now, raka is an Aramaic term, and it means you empty head, basically, is what raka means. He calls somebody, you empty head, you numb skull, okay? And he says, but now there's something even worse. If he calls somebody a fool, and the Greek word there is moros, so we get our English word moron. Now, look, I know God has a sense of humor, okay? I know God has a sense of humor, because just look at the person next to you, right? So you're supposed to have a sense of humor when I say that, okay? God has a sense of humor. He knows when we're joking around. If you just in good fun or kidding with somebody, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, okay? He's talking about when you really have an attitude of the heart that is bitter and angry and you wish somebody were dead. That's the spirit behind all this. It's not when you kid with your buddy and you know, you're like, you fool. That's just joking around. This is an attitude of the heart. And Jesus is talking about people who wished that somebody was dead. You're so angry at them that even though you won't kill them, you wish that they might get hit by a bus accidentally. <laughs> Don't look at me like you judge me. You've thought that kind of thing before. Somebody that you didn't like. You've had some wicked thoughts probably, I'm sure. <sighs> But Jesus says, look, you're going to have to deal with the issues of the heart. Because true followers of Jesus look at the attitudes, motives, and thoughts of the heart. Then he goes on in verse 23. He says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Now, I've heard some people, when they read this verse, they think it has to do with your offering, your tithes, your offerings. Oh, I, I shouldn't be tithing or giving any offerings because I'm not in good standing with a brother or sister in the Lord. Uh, but look, the gifts here in this context have to do with the sacrifices that they would bring to the temple. And the idea is that when you would bring a sacrifice, a lamb to be slaughtered, you were offering that lamb as a, an atoning sacrifice for your sins, and you were asking God for forgiveness. And the idea is that Jesus is saying, don't come to God and ask for forgiveness if you're not willing to extend the same thing to other people who have wronged you or people that you have offended that you have to go and you have to make it right with people. So it's this idea of don't carry your sacrifice into the temple, don't offer your gift, don't ask for God's forgiveness if you're not willing to also be a vessel of forgiveness 
with others that you know. Verse 25, he says, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who was taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, where he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So in this section, in general, the main point that Jesus is making here is put away angry thoughts, anger, bitterness, wrath, those kinds of things that are so destructive, uh, unforgiveness. He says, no, you've got you to make it right with people that you might be at odds with as far as it depends on you. And you're not responsible for how they react. You're not responsible for how they respond. But as far as it depends on us, we have to do what we can to be right with people. Some of you might you know, think, well, how far back do I have to go? I've offended people all my life. I, you know, <laughs> just go back as far as you feel like you can or should. Uh, probably if you, you know, if you spend a lifetime offending people, you know, you, you, <laughs> you're going to spend a lifetime trying to make it up. But, but uh, you know, just in general, just going forward, just, you know, do what you can to be at peace with all people as far as it depends on you. Settle, settle matters quickly before it gets to court. Do what you can to resolve issues and matters of differences. Uh, and so the main thing that Jesus is saying here is, great, if you haven't murdered somebody, that's wonderful, but has your heart been angry, unforgiving, uh, you're, at, you're at odds with somebody, you need to reconcile with them, put away angry thoughts. Then he gets to this other section here, subtitled Adultery in verse 27. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, that's commandment number seven, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, what he's talking about here is putting away lustful thoughts. And he quotes the seventh commandment. And again, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the people are believing that the only thing that God's concerned about is your behavior. That's not the only thing God is concerned about. He's concerned about our hearts. So he says, great, if you haven't violated seventh commandment, committing adultery, that's wonderful. But have you lusted after a woman? Or obviously in the context of you ladies, have you lusted after a man? That lust is an issue of the heart. And he says, we have to be examining the attitudes, thoughts, and, and, and our hearts because that's what, that's what will lead. If you want to live a good life in terms of good behavior, good behavior should be an overflow of a good heart. Because otherwise, if your heart is wicked and corrupt and evil and unrestrained, but you just live out your life in the motions of doing things that are good, that's just false righteousness. That isn't even sincere. That's hypocritical. So the best Christian life is get the heart right, the mind, the attitudes, and then right behavior flows out of that. But it has to be dealt with first in the attitude of the heart. And Jesus says, do you lust after somebody? If you lust after somebody, don't pat yourself on the back that you haven't violated the seventh commandment. Because if you've lusted after somebody, you're guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. Now, let me hasten to add, lusting after someone is taken to an extreme versus just noticing that somebody is beautiful or good looking. To notice that somebody is beautiful, to notice that somebody is good looking is not necessarily lust. That's just appreciating God's good creation, okay? But lust is taken to the place of fantasy and imagination and covetousness with, with sexual intention in your heart 
undressing someone with your mind, actually thinking about sex acts in your mind. That's the level of lust that he's talking about here. Just noticing that somebody is an attractive individual is not necessarily lust by itself, but lust can be an issue which becomes a sin when we begin to fantasize and begin to covet, and we have those lustful sexual ideas in our hearts, minds, uh, in regards to another person. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Matthew on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can download our mobile app, too, while you're there. It's under On The Go. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45, as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. CornerstoneConnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. And you can meet the staff. If you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, please connect with us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us to study Matthew, and we hope you'll tune in again to learn more about Jesus. That's right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know